Welcome to Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. Today, we have a brand new song from rapper and new father, James Lindsay. But first, a story from a fellow Louisville native and a mutual friend of both his and mine. Hey there, this has been So Lee. I am a cellist and composer here in Louisville, Kentucky. I really enjoyed James Lindsay's piece. Um, like my story, it's about mentorship and father figures and uh, activities that we do to try to connect with those people. For me, it was music. Uh, for him, it was basketball. One quick note. Since Ben and James both have deep catalogs of extraordinary music, you'll hear instrumentals of each of their songs as backing music. Now, here's Ben Sully. Coal runs in veins through the mountains. Over the years, all the thick, easy-to-reach arteries have been cleared. What's left are these capillaries that are much harder to mine. It's too expensive and dangerous for companies to pay a man to dig a hole, climb in it, and pull out coal. So they took the top of the mountain off. They cleared the trees, set explosives, broke it in pieces, and hauled it away an economical solution to reach these abundant but thin veins of coal. Of course, what's left over is a gray moonscape that Kentucky and other states are still not sure what to do with. Growing up in a big city like Lexington, Kentucky, I was unaware of what was going on in East Kentucky. I was busy playing sports and making music with my friends and family. I especially loved playing music with my grandfather, Elvis. Elvis Henry Cornelius was a renaissance man, a farmer, postman, coal miner, veteran, Baptist preacher, and fiddler. I would visit him and my grandma Marie on the weekends. We'd play music. He would teach me old time and bluegrass tunes on my cello, what he affectionately called my bull fiddle. Over the years, he anchored me in the musical heritage of my place. He took me to barn dances, front porch sessions, and of course, Renfro Valley. The place where he, as a 20-something musician, nearly got his break. But the Model T Ford broke down on the way. So seeing his grandson on stage was a big deal. He was a big supporter of my music. He recorded cassette tapes for me to learn all his favorite tunes. Now lost forever since a young impatient me mistakenly recorded over these for my band's entry into the Battle of the Bands contest. Anyway, he came to my concerts with the Central Kentucky Youth Orchestra. He loved seeing me play music. Elvis passed away when I was a junior in high school. Marie lived on for another decade and a half. She was lonesome, but fine. Grandma and Grandpa had always had money. They paid for everything in cash. They helped out family members when life got tight. They covered my mom's education in Lexington, where she eventually met my father. They even helped me buy the cello to make music on. I never asked, but I figured they were just frugal, and Elvis was good at trading hog bellies, his favorite commodity. After his death, life only sped up. I started touring, went to college, and played more music with more and different people. It was probably my senior year of college that I learned about mountaintop removal strip mining, and I immediately felt like I had to do something about it. I was going to use music to raise awareness about what I viewed as the most destructive, irresponsible, unfair, and irrevocable environmental issue facing my state, region, and country. 
I teamed up with organizations like Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, Appalachian Voices, the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition, and even the NRDC. I was determined. Eventually, I spearheaded a record project with fellow Kentuckians Daniel Martin Moore and Jim James, called Dear Companion. The purpose of the record was to celebrate Appalachia and bring national attention and money to the issue of mountaintop removal strip mining. It was a good record, and we had all the right partners to make it a big release. Before the release, we got major press and top picks and high-profile magazines and blogs. We were set to make a really big splash. On release day in February of 2010, I was sitting at home with my young son and my mom. The album was doing great. Top of the charts and sales and reviews, NPR coverage, all the things. And my mom and I got to talking about Elvis, music, family, and Appalachia. At some point, the topic of money came up along with our family's land in East Kentucky. And finally, I had the awareness and confidence to ask, so where did Grandma and Grandpa get their money? The stock market? My mom looked concerned. Oh, honey, you don't know. No? Well, they stripped the family mountain. I was shocked. The implication was immediate and and jarring. That awake and buzzy feeling you get when you jump from warm water to cold. My life had been underwritten in part through strip mining. My parents' life had been stabilized by strip mining. My whole music path and my grandpa's role in it had been subsidized by strip mining. It was only then that I understood the position that people in Appalachia face. These companies offer them life-changing money for their mineral rights. My grandparents weren't dumb. They understood the cost of the land and the environment. But this was an opportunity to alter the path of their children and their grandchildren's lives, even if that did lead to a protest record of the very thing that made it possible. That was Ben Salee, and now we turn to James Lindsay for his song, Written in Response. My name is James Lindsay. I think of myself as a, a father now, a, a new a newfound father, a rapper, musician, creative, uh, entrepreneur, a ball of energy. This story was really more so about privilege and tradition and family and the, the bond that you have between those things, right? And I wanted to talk about like broken traditions, broken families, systematic oppression. That's why I couldn't necessarily write a song, write a song about uh, family tradition and heritage and these things because it's like, for one, I can only trace my heritage back so far before I have no idea where it's from. It's really hard to necessarily talk about tradition and, you know, 200 years of culture and all these things. Like, I I can't do that. You know, it's just, it's not reality. So I had to just like stick to to my piece. Yeah, I just started thinking about like my family dynamic and how I grew up and, and how that you know made me who I am today. I grew up in a neighborhood called Norfolk, and it's just like this like uh, 
just five or six streets or something like that. That's all it was. It was small. So it was, like, it was almost like a, a small little community. We had a corner store. We had uh, a liquor store. We had a record store at one point, you know, where you could get your music. So everything was there. We didn't really need anything else. But the other thing that we had that was smack dab in the middle of our neighborhood was basketball court. It's one of those pl those places where you can get out your anger, your angst, you uh, you being upset. But then also the same same uh, token, it's also it's a safe place for us too. You know, like you know, you don't hear about kids getting shot at a, uh, by a police officer at a basketball court. That's one thing that I like about playing basketball. It's one thing I like about running too, or just doing most sports. It's like, you can cut off from the world because when you're playing a sport, you can't really think about like, what's on your phone or who offended you or who you just got into it with or, you know what I'm saying? Any of those things, you, you can't think about that because you're playing a sport, you literally, that's, that's all you're focused on. And you feel that you, there's like a brotherhood and you feel like someone understands you because they come, they go, they're going through it too. In my neighborhood growing up, I can remember all of the kids in the neighborhood. I can remember all of the, the women in the neighborhood, but I don't remember any fathers. Like all of my friends, we all shared that same common bond is that like our fathers weren't in our life when we were children. All of my friends that I played basketball with, I never met their fathers a day in my life. So there was just a lot of kids that were just like, oh yeah, my dad lives downtown, I don't see him anymore. My dad lives, you know, in the West End, I don't see him anymore. He's still in town, he's still alive. He's still able-bodied able and has a car and works, or whatever the case may be, he just sends the child support, but doesn't really come around. You go to so-and-so's house, you notice that the mom answers the door. You notice that the mom always answers the door, you notice you've never seen a guy answer the door. I remember we would go to our boy Tyrone's crib and it was so fun to us because we would play basketball with Tyrone in his crib. It was so like positive and great, but the best part about it was his dad was with him. His dad would come out and his dad would play basketball with us. So for that little inkling, we would get like that sense of like, wow, this is what having a dad is like at your house. You know what I'm saying? Like this is a beautiful thing, you know? You know, we'd be playing basketball and his dad would bring out like a, a can, a, a thing of water, or his dad will come and join us. You know what I'm saying? His dad's a little bigger and stronger. Like, yeah, all right, man. This, like, you know, okay, this is somebody to look up to. You know, this is a, an adult black male. But we didn't have those things. My buddy Doug had a daddy that he ain't ever see. My buddy Wayne had a daddy that he ain't ever see. My buddy Streets had a daddy that he ain't ever see. And we connected. See, I was ten when my dad left me. I was resentful of my father for a long time, like just trying to figure out why he left and when he left, why did he not come back or why did he not come back enough or, you know, like it's those things. But but now me holding my, I'm, I'm writing all this at the same time, like, you know, like literally, like while I was writing this, like my son was in my arms. I'm like, man, I can't, I can't wait to be a father for him. I can't wait to not let him, like, I won't, I, I will not like let him be that kid at the park that's like, man, where's my dad at? It's wild, yeah, he's the, the third, James Lindsay the third. Yeah. Me, him, and my dad are four days apart, all born four days apart, it's kind of creepy. I mean, I will say that before, I guess, before this is all done, I have a great relationship with my father now, we're great. Um, but I, I just had to tap into the emotions that were 13-year-old James Lindsay. Here's James Lindsay with his song, Hoop Sessions.
sessions, group therapy for black kids. I just thought about that shit cause way back then Growing up dads was absent But we had rims at every park Even if them shits was half bent Shoot for captains I was tapped in but I couldn't grab rim That's kinda sad Cause there was niggas that was dunking in my class But they didn't have the jumper that I had as I splashed Net sounded like waves when they crashed If she's courtside dog I'm in my bag Hit the game winner then I'm talking trash we were so young, growing up fast First pick to the last Needed freedom and it seemed that it lasted all day when we was out there It was really an escape to be out there Yeah Ooh, session, therapy for black kids yeah. I said, Ooh, sessions, therapy for black kids Yeah Ooh, sessions, group therapy For black kids Black kids. My buddy Dub had a daddy that he ain't ever see. My buddy Wayne had a daddy that he ain't ever see. My buddy Streets had a daddy that he ain't ever see. And we connected, see, I was 10 when my dad left me. My senior left before I graduated middle school. My world was over, but to him that shit was minuscule. But it was difficult. And if it wasn't for that court, I'd be a different dude. See, to me, um, a LeBron's a reflection of the wands that was raised by the moms. Make no mistake, see the moms were phenomenal, but the dad took the bond. Pros and the cons, double entendre. Found something right in the world so wrong. Kinda ironic, cause I wrote this as I palmed my newborn son in my arm, just like a spalding. Can't wait till the day that he starts balling. Cause who sessions group therapy for black kids? Yeah, for black Who sessions group therapy for black kids? That was James Lindsay with his song, Hoop Sessions. And with that, we have only one more episode in the second season of Songwriter. Some of you may recall I was trying to run a contest to find a songwriter for the final episode featuring a story from Michael Ian Black, but I didn't get any entries, so I gave the episode to my friend Victoria Jones, who wrote a gorgeous song. Still, I do occasionally get emails from folks who would like to be a part of Songwriter, and so I put up a page with some tips and ideas. You can find it at benarthur.com forward slash songwriter forward slash pitches. That's P-I-T-C-H-E-S. Songwriter is now a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, along with some other great podcasts. Make sure to check out americansongwriter.com forward slash podcast. And you can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Last, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.